I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. This week, the Catholic Church celebrates the solemnity of Mary's Assumption into Heaven. But where do Catholics get this idea? Is there any biblical basis for Mary's Assumption, or is this just something the Catholic Church made up a long time ago? Where do we find this in Scripture? That's what I want to take a look at today, uh, because I have a lot of Protestant brothers and sisters that have a lot of questions about the Catholic beliefs about Mary, especially like on this kind of a topic, Mary's assumption. Show me in Scripture, where is this? And I can understand where they're coming from, because from their perspective, this seems to be like another example of Catholics exaggerating Mary's role in the Christian life. Uh, Catholics seem to be always putting Mary on par with Jesus from their perspective. You know, they, they would say, well, you know, Jesus is a king, so the Catholics make Mary to be a queen, and Jesus is without sin, so the Catholics make Mary to be immaculately conceived without sin. And in this case here, Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection. And so the Catholics have to make up something similar. So they come up with this idea of Mary's assumption into heaven. Uh, Again, I want to unpack what the Catholic Church actually teaches about the assumption. I'll make sure we understand that clearly. And then I want to back up and take a look at the scriptures. Does the Bible offer any support for the idea of Mary's assumption. So you ready? Let's jump into this. First of all, if you want to read about the doctrine itself, a simple place you can go, you just go online and find this, Catechism Article Number 966. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, 966, uh, tells us that at the end of Mary's earthly life, she was assumed body and soul into heaven. Now that language at the end of her earthly life, that's what you find in the official dogmatic proclamation of Mary's assumption. I want to, I want you to listen to that language there. Did Mary die? Here's my question for you. Did Mary experience death? In other words, did she die and then was she ascended to heaven? Or was she in the middle of her day and, and all of a sudden was taken up into heaven? Or was she on her deathbed, but just before she died, taken up into heaven? What does the church actually teach about this? Listen to the language at the end of her earthly life. So what's interesting is the church leaves open two possibilities. One possibility is that she didn't experience death. She was, again, it could have been she was with her apostles, with her friends, and suddenly is taken up into heaven. It could be that uh, she uh, is on her deathbed and she's about to die, but uh, her, her life ends and she's taken up to heaven, but doesn't experience death. That's what many people assume, is that Mary did not experience death. And you could be a good, faithful Catholic and believe that. The church is open to that possibility. Uh, and you'll find many, uh, many theologians and saints throughout the history that would hold that view. Uh, where do they get this? Uh, they, they would say, well, Mary was conceived without sin. We as Catholics believe that she was immaculately conceived. She did not have original sin. One of the effects of original sin is death. So Mary would have been preserved from death before she died. She is assumed into heaven. And again, you could be a good, faithful Catholic and believe that. The church is open to that possibility. But I want you to be aware of another line of possibility. Uh, it's actually one that's a little stronger in the Catholic tradition. You find this especially uh, in the Eastern tradition, and you find it in great heroes of our own age, like St. John Paul II held this second view that Mary did experience death. Mary experienced death. She dies. She breathes her last. She experiences death, and then she's taken up into heaven before her body experiences any kind of corrupt 
corruption. So there's no bodily corruption still. She's still assumed in heaven, body and soul, but after she experienced death. Now, again, this is what St. John Paul II taught. This is what many uh, in the Eastern tradition of the church, this is a strong tradition in the Catholic faith. And, uh, and, and the church was deliberately, when it proclaimed the doctrine of Mary's assumption, deliberately open to both of these possibilities. But I want to tell you why I, I'm personally a little more convinced about the JP2 view. Uh, you know, again, it's true. Mary you know, was conceived without sin, of course. We believe in the Immaculate Conception. Uh, and, but some people wonder, well, if she, she didn't have original sin, how could she possibly have experienced death? And I would come right back and say, did Jesus have original sin? Jesus didn't have original sin, and yet he freely chose to enter into death. He experienced death for the sake of our salvation. And how fitting it would be if Mary, to be so united with her son, also experienced death like he did. She was there at the cross watching him breathe his last and suffer that agonizing death. How fitting it would be if Mary herself, to be more perfectly united with her son, she also experienced death. And I would go a step further. How fitting it would be for Mary to be so close to us. Mary, who is our dear spiritual mother, our mother who in the Hail Mary, as we say, prays for us not only now, but she's going to pray for us at the hour of our death, when our human lives end here on earth. Uh, How fitting it is if Mary herself, how fitting it would be if Mary also experienced death so that she could be more fully united with us and empathize with us and pour out evermore her, her maternal prayers for us at that crucial moment of our death. So I think for those two reasons, Mary's closeness with her son who experienced death and her closeness with us who, 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 who will experience death, I, I think it's most fitting that she too experienced death. And that's the view of St. John Paul II. And that's the, the strong view in the Catholic tradition. But again, you could be a good Catholic and be open to the possibility that she didn't experience death. The church is open to either one of these. Again, you can look at that in Catechism 966 for more. But what about uh, arguments for why we would believe this, that she was assumed into heaven, whether she died or, or, or was taken up before she died, whatever tradition we hold, why would we even say she was assumed body and soul into heaven? Uh, are there any arguments we could make? And before I get to the scriptures, I want to share with you one kind of funny argument. I call this the argument from relics. You know how in the Catholic Church... Uh, you know, for, for ages, we have venerated and valued the relics of the great saints, body parts, the tombs of the saints, uh, the actual bodies of the saints where they're buried. You can go all over Rome, so many parts of Europe, uh, and you can go and in, to the places where many of the saints are buried. And when I lead my Rome pilgrimage, for example, we see in a week's time, like over 70 different saints, you know, uh, sometimes it's, most of the time, it's just the tomb of the saint that's buried there in Rome. Sometimes it's like the hand of Saint, uh, the, the hand of uh, Saint Francis Xavier that's in the Jesu church in Rome, or you have the uh, the, the body of, of Saint Ma- uh, Catherine of Siena in the church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. Her head is in Siena, but the rest of her body's there in Rome where she died. And, and, and so it's, you know, we, we venerate relics. And this was the pride of every city uh, around medieval Europe is which, which relic was, was there in their saint, uh, in their town, and which saint was their saint. And people would go on pilgrimage and venerate 
revisit these relics to remember the saints and remember the, the great things God did in them. You know, we kind of do this today, you know, with sports heroes and uh, rock stars. You know, we, we tend to want to, you know, if I if I, I got an autograph of this of this great soccer player or I got the jersey of this great NFL football player, we kind of remember the things that they touched. And we do this for just heroes today. But how much more so the human instinct is I, I want to have some kind of connection to uh, these these holy heroes, uh, the great saints of our history, to kind of remember what God did in their lives. It's not that these relics or body parts are magical or anything. It's just more, you know, we, 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 lo- we want to remember the great things God accomplished in their lives to give us hope that God can do those same great works of salvation in us. Now, that's a little background just on uh, relics and all, but what's fascinating is if the Catholic Church has always valued the relics of the saints, it's fascinating that there is no city that has ever claimed to have the bones of Mary. There is no city that has ever claimed to have the bones of Mary. No record of her remains being visited anywhere. No record of pilgrims going and venerating her, uh, her, the, the, her bones, her remains. That's fascinating. We, we do this for practically every saint you can find. This is where they go to remember where that saint is buried, where their bones are, where their, 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 their body was put to rest. And, uh, and we don't do that with Mary. Why? because her bones aren't here on earth. <laughs> she was assumed into heaven. Now, that's just kind of a fun argument, but maybe more uh, more to the scriptures, to the inspired word of God. I want to be clear. There's no explicit proof text from scripture about Mary's assumption, uh, but there are some biblical foundations. We do have some biblical precedent for the idea of God taking uh, people up to heaven, whether it's Enoch in uh, in the Old Testament, he's mentioned in Hebrews 11.5 as having been taken up to heaven and walking with God. Elijah in 2 Kings 2.11 is taken up to heaven in that fiery chariot. So if God could take these holy men uh, up to heaven, uh, he certainly could have done the same thing with his own mother. <laughs> so I, I think that's one just thing to keep in mind. But more to the point is this. Uh, if you look at Revelation chapter 12, there's a mysterious woman who appears, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and crowned with 12 stars. That's traditionally understood to be a symbol for the people of God, Israel, the Old Testament, or uh, the, the New Testament church. But most importantly, that woman is described in Revelation 12:5 as giving birth to the Messiah, the, the, the child who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's a prophecy given in Psalm 2 about the future anointed one, the Messiah King. So explicitly right there in Revelation 12, 5, this woman in Revelation 12 is described as the mother of the Messiah. So uh, if, if, you, if you read about the mother of the Messiah in the New Testament, who would you be thinking of first? You'd be thinking of Mary. And Mary, of course, can represent Israel, she represent the church. But first and foremost, a Christian in the first century would see this woman is the mother of the Messiah. This must be Mary. <laughs> now, What's fascinating is Mary is described in heaven in glory and splendor, crowned with 12 stars, and that, that would be some indication that she's up there in heaven already. But I think the line that I'm most fascinated about, and I, and I wrote about this for the first time in my recent book that's at the printer now, you could pray for it. It's called Rethinking Mary in the New Testament. This is a book that's going to cover every New Testament reference to the Blessed Virgin Mary, getting into all the debates. And, uh, and as I walk through Revelation 12, I mentioned this point that this woman who is in heaven, the mother of the Messiah, Mary, 
is described in chapter 12, verse 6, as fleeing to the desert where God has prepared a place for her. And that language of Mary going to a place prepared by God is fascinating because that language, where God, uh, the place where God prepared a place for her, that language recalls something St. John wrote about earlier uh, in, in John chapter 14, verse 2, in, in the gospel, uh, or later, I should say, John's gospel being written a little bit later, but coming earlier in the canon of the New Testament, John 14, verse 2, uh, Jesus in the farewell discourse, do you remember what he says at the Last Supper before he dies? He says in John chapter 14, in my father's house, there are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. That's what he says to his disciples before he dies. In my father's house, the temple of the Lord, the heavenly temple, there are going to be many rooms and Jesus is going to go. He's going to die, rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. Why? Because he's going to prepare a place for you, for his disciples, So that language from John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 2, about Jesus going to heaven, to the heavenly temple, to the Father's house to prepare a place for the disciples, that language is is, is similar to what you find in Revelation 12, 6, about Mary, the woman who's the mother of the Messiah, flees to the desert and she goes to a place prepared for her by God. That same kind of language. In other words, that heavenly room that God has in store for all of his faithful disciples. He's got all these different rooms for his disciples in heaven. He has one prepared for Mary. And Mary already goes there in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. So I think that's a very strong indication. I wouldn't call this a proof text. There's no clear, explicit proof text about Mary's assumption. But I think you have these little hints, these little indications. And John 12, or Revelation 12, 6 is one of those. Another last point I would make is this. The New Testament points out that Jesus promises all faithful disciples a share in his resurrection. Uh, All faithful disciples are going to share in his victory over death, uh, that their bodies will be be glorified. Uh, they, They will share in his victory over death. You can read about this, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, but it implies that there are going to be many others in the great harvest of the resurrection. All the other disciples uh, will come after him. Those that are united with Jesus, who have the life of Jesus in them, have that same spirit of Christ that rose, G- that brought Jesus to his resurrection. That same spirit dwells in us. We will rise on the last day and share in his resurrection. Uh, that's a promise he makes to all of us. All of us are going to have, at the end of time, our bodies, if we're faithful to him, uh, our bodies will rise and be glorified. Glorified. Now, here's the key. The New Testament also reveals that Mary is the first disciple of Jesus. She's the first one to say yes in the New Covenant era, at the, uh, in her fiat, at the Annunciation. She says, let it be done unto me according to your word. She's the first person to obey God's word in the New Covenant. Uh, she's the one who is described as a servant of the Lord. She obeys the angel's message about uh, about her kinswoman Elizabeth and, and trusts in that word, and she goes to visit Elizabeth. She is the one who remains faithful throughout her life, constantly keeping and pondering the mysterious events in her heart. She's the one that commissions Jesus at the wedding feast to Cana to begin his public ministry. She's the one of the few disciples that's there at the cross. When many people ran away and they were scared, the other disciples ran away, but Mary 
is one of the few there at the cross. She is a faithful disciple. Acts 1.14 tells us right before Pentecost, she's there praying with the disciples uh, for that outpouring of the Spirit that's going to come upon them. So from A to Z, from the Annunciation to Pentecost, Mary stands out as the first disciple of Christ and as a model disciple. How fitting, then, it is that if she's the first one going ahead of us in faith, that she would be the first one to receive the blessing of the resurrection. Remember, Jesus promised all faithful disciples a share in his victory over death, a share in the bodily resurrection, and uh, and that's, uh, that's something Mary receives first. She dies, and at the end of her earthly life, she is immediately sent into heaven, her body and soul. How fitting it is that she goes before us. The rest of us are going to await the end of time for the resurrection of our bodies. Mary as the first disciple, the perfect disciple, the model disciple. How fitting it is that she goes ahead of us. So I think this theme, these two themes of of Christ as the one who uh, promises all faithful disciples a share in his resurrection, and then Mary as the first disciple. I think those two biblical themes kind of set a New Testament trajectory that point in the direction of the idea of Mary's assumption. It doesn't prove it by any means. I want to be clear on that. But I think there's some biblical support for this idea if we're kind of trying to understand who she is as the first disciple, how fitting it is that she is the first to receive this great blessing of the glorified body in heaven. So this is the great feast we celebrate this week, my friends. If this podcast has been helpful for you in understanding Mary's assumption a little bit better, please share this with others. If you haven't had a chance to write a review, please write a review and and share this with others. If you have any questions about Mary, her assumption, or anything else, you can reach out to me on my website, edwardsreed.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and also now I'm on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram as well. Thanks so much. God bless you.